In the course of the release of the podcast with the benefit of hindsight, we were contacted by many people who were involved in the story, and I reconnected with several people I had been in touch with previously. And one of those, who's a very interesting and I think important character in this story, is Kevin Horn. And Kevin Horn is actually mentioned in later episodes uh, of the podcast. But after the podcast was released, uh, he and I uh, reconnected, and he's agreed to do an interview with me. And I'm very interested in, in what he has to say. And so, uh, Kevin, uh, welcome to the Benefit of Hindsight. Yeah, nice to be with you, John. All right, now, Kevin, let's go back to um, November 2011 so people understand your relevance and significance to the story. Uh, you're at Penn State, and, and you're actually um, intricately involved in the in one of the two student newspapers there. So tell us, your where what was your standing uh, when this story broke? Yeah, I was a sophomore at Penn State at the time, actually, and um, it wasn't a newspaper, but it was a, one of the competing media outlets called Onward State, which still exists. Um, at the time, it was only a few years old, um, sort of a competition with the you know 150-year-old Daily Collegiate newspaper, and it was sort of in a, based around digital reads and Twitter and Facebook, you know, and all those things. All right. Well, by, by the way, just so for the record, us, us old people still, toxic. just by the way, Kevin, just for, for the record, us old people call those newspapers. Okay. So. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Or you call them a blog and right. use that as a derogatory right. term. But, um, so I was, I was, I just started writing for them that semester. Um, and right when the story broke and, but I, you know, I've lived around here my entire life, uh, an hour away where I grew up and, you know, I had season tickets for years, and so I saw. I, I knew who Jason Essie was. Most students didn't. Uh, hardly any did, because he had been, you know, ten years prior, twelve years prior, actually retired. So um, I was one of the few people on staff that sort of knew most of the players. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, we covered the, the, the breaking of everything, sort of real time. And ultimately, you know, I became the managing editor of that website for two years, my junior and senior year. Um, Partially because of that coverage, uh, Almer State, I think, still is, even though it's not sort of the same entity, um, it, it still is the most followed based on Facebook and Twitter followers uh, of any student-produced media website uh, in the world but by more than double. At least it used to be. I haven't checked in about a year. But, wow. I, you know, it, for a student media outlet, um, it, partially <laughs> Jerry Sandusky, partially due to the fact that we were nimble and digital when that happened and, you know, all the others. Content that's coming right. out of the years. Uh, okay, so so to review, it. so yeah. to review, so to review, when the story breaks, November 2011, you're a sophomore, you're writing for the paper, but as the story evolves, which is naturally the case, you become a junior and then a senior, and you get into a basically a management position at Onward State, and you end up, among other things, covering the actual trial. So it's almost like your timing. To be on this story was was perfect. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, yeah, it, it did. I, I was glad I was here for it. It timed well with sort of my progression at the at the website. I was actually uh, John the, the semester after it broke, so it broke in the fall semester. Spring semester, I was named uh, the first and last ever Sandusky scandal editor <laughs> that Amherst State had. <laughs> so, um, kind of a funny uh, thing to put on your resume. But uh, but right. by the time the trial came around that summer. Um, I was I was the managing editor in, in charge of all that coverage, and the outlet itself had uh, two media passes for the for the courtroom. 
All right, and so we'll get to uh, your experience with the trial uh, momentarily. But and this sounds like it's not that relevant, but it, it actually is to your role and how you perceived your role. What was your career aspiration at that time? I really had none. To be honest with you, John, I was sort. I came here as a freshman uh, because I don't know. In my family, going to college is sort of just what you did. I think I came in undecided. I think when the scandal broke, I was still undecided major. I was just sort of going through the motions, taking classes, having a great time, and uh, and earning credits. But I had not quite figured that out yet. Um, and uh, I think again, I eventually became a lawyer. I'm now a criminal defense attorney. I went to law school at Penn State too, and continued to write for Onward State. So I was man. I wrote for them for six years, um, essentially, which is a long time for a student news outlet. But um, at well, the time, I really did not have career aspirations to do anything. I was 19 and sort of. Uh, not even thinking about that. All right. Well, part of the reason I mentioned that is because I think your evolution on this story is kind of emblematic of the story itself. And so let's go to that uh, evolution. So when the story breaks and the and the hysteria hits State College, and, and let's be clear, I mean, nothing like this had ever happened uh, to State College or maybe any other college uh, quite like this when it comes to a media firestorm. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's key. I mean, the, the days are so distinct in my mind from when this all happened, right? See, the the, uh, the Ganem story first published on a Friday evening. Um, and at that point, again, it's, you know, it's Jeff's really accusing Jerry Sandusky. There are some things in there about an assistant coach, uh, maybe having witnessed things. and But at that point, only Jerry, it was only announced that Jerry was going to be arrested. And so, you know, I I read the whole thing. I'm like, well, this you know, someone who who knew who Jerry Sneffy was, one of the few people, one of the few students, certainly. I'm like, well, this is this is strange and gross, but it's not it's not a story that's going to move the needle nationally, right? You might get like an AP wire out of it, and you know, the sports outlets will run that, but it's not not going to devastate the university in ways that it ended up ultimately devastating it. Then you wake up Saturday morning. Um, and I, I remember my roommate woke me up. You know, I'm, 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 I slept on the couch. I, I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And he's like, you, you got to see this on, on ESPN. I'm like, no, I already read that yesterday. Like, whatever. Like, it, I didn't really give too much thought about it other than, like, this is gross. And um, that guy's been gone for a while. Uh, he's still alive, I guess. That's cool. Uh, but then once the current administrators, Curley and Schultz, you know, even casual Penn State fans knew who Tim Curley was. He'd been the athletic director for a while. Um Okay, well, this is sort of this is a big deal, and you start seeing the the photos and walking into the magistrate to get booked, and like, all right, well, this this is this is becoming more than I anticipated it being. Um, you know, all the while we're, we're sort of getting having conference calls with the staff at Armour State. That Saturday, actually, there was it was an off day for Penn State, but there was a a basketball scrimmage. I think it was a preseason scrimmage that did not count in the standings. It was free for anyone to go to. Um, and I remember going up to that game, and you, that's when you start seeing media members that are sort of outside the half a dozen or so located in State College start to trickle down through the stands trying to get, like, real reaction quotes from students and, and other folks at that game. Um, I, I remember that distinctly. And then at, from that point on, of course, once Paterno gets involved, it, it goes off the rails quite quickly uh, during right. those four days until he's fired on that Wednesday. Right. And, I, and my memory of those days while I wasn't there is is similarly uh, crystallized in my brain. And I was just you know watching this on television from Southern California. So actually living it must have been beyond surreal. And so when the, when this all happens, and let's, let's go to the point where, you know, Penn State 
publicly effectively pleads guilty by firing the great Joe Paterno and effectively firing Graham Spanier and and Jerry Sandusky obviously had, had already been arrested at that point. How much of this narrative are you personally buying? Well, the, the question, and so your work now, it, I, I first, when you were focused on Paterno in the beginning, too, just like everyone here in State College, right? Um, the, the question quickly, no, no one was even asking, is Jerry Sandusky innocent or guilty? You sort of read the, you read the charges, you read the, the presentment, and um, obviously, it's obviously provided in a one-sided manner. And I wasn't legally trained then. I didn't even know what a presentment was. No one did. Um, you just sort of assumed he was guilty, but you didn't really put any thought into it because the question, the more important question, at least for the reputation of the school and the town, quickly became how much was Joe Paterno and the other administrators culpable? Was there a cover-up or was there simply a – was there a, I thought at best you know, there was an ethical failure – or something broke down, um, at, at worst it was the cover-up, which is what the media was sort of running with. We didn't really pay too much attention to, well, what, where, where does Jerry come in in all this? It didn't really matter to, the, to us it, 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 because the focus quickly became uh, t- turned to, to Paterno and, and his culpability or, or lack thereof. And Kevin, let me stop you right there because that, to me, is one of the most critical concepts of this entire story uh, in in hindsight, since the podcast is called with the benefit of hindsight, do you agree that that was a critical uh, juncture in this story where because everyone cared far, far, far more about Joe Paterno than Jerry Sandusky, that everyone got way ahead of themselves and then uh, th- we started this avalanche of presumptions that, that turn, in, turn into a narrative that cannot be reversed. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, if you're looking, yeah, if you're Jerry Sandusky, you certainly think so. I mean, I, I, we may disagree on this, John. I think that uh, Jerry Sandusky's guilt or innocence can be separated from Paterno's guilt or innocence, um, and and that's what we were all doing, right? Because Joe Paterno can, can be totally innocent in, in any sort of wrongdoing or even um, right. ethical lapse. No, like we get Kevin, Kevin, that. Kevin. We so, get uh, Penn Staters were making that division in their head. I think very early on. Right, but you do you get where I'm coming from? Where that we got way ahead of the story. In other words, you're supposed to prove a crime first before you prove a cover-up. This was a this was the first story I've ever heard of where where we presume a cover-up before we even know if there's a crime. And in fact, the cover-up is used somehow to prove the crime. I mean, that, that's that's unheard of. That's exactly the opposite. Yeah, it's, well, it's certainly an element. What, what mattered more to us was what McQuarrie told Paterno. So whether right. McQuarrie witnessed the crime or not. Right. What what if you said he did or right. did not? You know that was sort of the most relevant piece of information. Still, frankly, is as it relates to All right. Well, my point my point is nothing. Yeah, my point is that you've you've identified a very critical phenomenon in this that's unique because of the politics involved in this and the the fact that the media was far far more interested in Paterno because that's the name, and uh, and so. You're, everyone's effectively assuming that this is all based in reality. We've assumed the crime happened or the crimes happened, and now we're just trying to figure out uh, how much culpability the great Joe Paterno and Penn State as an institution had. So let me go back to the question I don't think you really answered. How much of the media narrative at the time of the explosion are you, Kevin Horn, buying? 
well, my answer is I didn't give too much thought to it. I just assumed he was guilty, but it wasn't a focus, right? Okay, but and then and, you turned to Paterno, and how and much? I thought, and like I said, he, he the narrative of Paterno being like this monster cover-up artist, like I, I never bought, right? I mean, I was there, I was there at the press conference when he was fired. I was at his house when he came out and gave his last public statement to the students, you know, uh, to say a prayer for the victim statement, and um, you know, phone call took me out of it maybe, and that that whole deal. Um, and Scott wallowing around in the front yard, um, but uh, so I was I was there for all of that. And then I was downtown with uh, for the for the I'll say large gathering. So we're, it was it was a, a period of mass confusion, right? I mean, this was John. It, it has taken you, who is obsessed over the story, like nine years to paint a, a, what I think is a, a relatively clear picture of what happened. This was three days later. So right. I was. I, I assumed he was guilty. I assumed Paterno was less guilty, but I was very, very interested in seeing where the story went. Okay. Um, and and those, what's key, John, to this is, and you know this, the five days of silence once Spanier was taken out of the decision-making process, uh, when there's no leadership from Penn State to do anything. Those five days when the first thing you hear from Penn State is John Sermer on the dais firing Spanier and Paterno instead of doing what he should have did, which was, um, we're going to look into the facts, uh, we're going to temporarily suspend them and, and do an investigation and figure out what actually happened. Uh, when he just went up there and they took it, and they took every part of it, um, those five days of silence and that first statement uh, what has sealed the narrative forever for, for almost anyone, <laughs> other than the people that listen to your podcast. Um, so that's, I think, a crucial juncture. Those just days of mass confusion in town and ultimately silence from leadership um, ha- cemented the narrative uh, in a way that I don't think will ever be totally undone. Those are all very good points. So let's move ahead. It's only seven months later, which is an extraordinary uh, fact. Yeah. Uh, that especially, by the way, seven months is a short period of time for, for any trial to occur. But But in this atmosphere, it's... It's bonkers uh, because you have constant uh, media coverage that is incredibly negative to Jerry Sandusky. You have got the whole uh, Bob Costas interview fiasco. Joe Paterno dies, uh, which is a huge story in State College. Uh, There's no continuances for the defense. And you are uh, heading Onward State's uh, coverage at the trial. Now, there's two two basic elements that I'm interested in with regard to the trial. One is the the way the media was treating uh, the trial and then what actually happened in the trial itself and whether or not the verdict was just. Let's talk about the media first. How would you describe the media culture surrounding the trial and and those you know people that you were covering the trial with i mean i know it's a it's a small uh community there i mean not too many places to hang out outside that courthouse you're all talking no. to, you're all talking to each other uh, give me a sense of the media culture of those covering the Sandusky trial and whether or not in your view uh there there was an inherent assumption of guilt uh that was insurmountable yeah well, it, it was varied. Um, well, I, I want to tell you my good story. You said there's nowhere outside the courthouse. This, this I think, encapsulates the circus of the whole thing. Um, when we're when the ver- when the jury's out and we're waiting for a verdict, uh, the media was just you know thousand-ish maybe members, including camera crews, just milling around outside the Belfont Courthouse, Center County Courthouse in Belfont. And you know, there's not a whole lot going on. There's pizza shops and there was a Dairy Queen. 
And uh, Dairy Queen had better Wi-Fi than Pizza Shop, so I spent most of the time at Dairy Queen. And I walk into the bathroom at the Dairy Queen, which was a single-seater uh, stall. And there's some, uh, I open the door, and there's someone in there because they didn't lock the door. So I open the door real quick, and in the bathroom is uh, a person dressed as Pedo Bear, <laughs> which I don't know if your listeners know who that is, but it's basically a large bear with a creepy smile uh, that, is, that is designed as like a cartoon character pedophile. Who, and he was in the furry costume, head to toe, washing his hands at the sink, his human hands, and turns around and stares right at me as I'm trying to go to the bathroom. I'm like, this is just a complete and utter circus. Um, and then, he, you know, he comes out of the bathroom and, and everyone's taking pictures of whatever. But far, that, that aside, as far as the media narrative goes, I mean, it was super varied, right? So you had and Amherst State covered it uh, down the middle. And by down the middle, I say, you know, we, if someone testified to this, we would say so-and-so said this. And we would do that for every single witness. Um, there were national people there who it was a little bit like most high-profile uh, trials. Uh, we just finished up with the Derek Chauvin verdict, which I know you have takes on, which aren't relevant to this case. But most of the media was just there <laughs> to, to see ensure that the, the jury made the correct decision. Right? That's how they would put it. Make sure they made the right decision. Um, not, and they weren't at all concerned. There's no chance he's ever going to be acquitted of, of all charges. Um, you know, a lot of the conversations I had, at least with, I, I mostly talked to the local folks who I knew, um, you know, as the, the days of the trial progressed, as the Commonwealth's case progressed, um, if you just took the accuser testimony in a vacuum, they basically presented them from what would sound most credible to an average jury to, to least credible, right? So the first, I remember two or three, actually very powerful testifiers, Okay. Like, if, if that was just in a vacuum, if, they're, if you're talking to that person on the street and they're telling you their story, um, you, you're going to believe them. With, and then this is without the benefit of sort of all of the cross-examination uh, questions that uh, uh, a lawyer would be able to ask now nine years later, knowing what we know about how the story's developed in every single one of the witnesses. And then it sort of ended with sort of the more outrageous, I think, more graphic, you know, gruesome even uh, claims of abuse. And so I think at least the folks I talked to, which, again, was not even um, close to a majority of the media members there, um, it was, uh, you know, you, you thought that probably some were telling the truth and some weren't. And there was probably going to be, you know, maybe he'd be convicted of half of the counts, which, again, would still put him in prison for the rest of his life. Um, because we don't have, one, Amendola didn't have the time nor the ammo to appropriately cross-examine any of these accusers and how their stories have developed. And, and a lot came out after the trial about how um, the stories got to what they what they got to. Right. So I think the tempo was he's 100% going to be guilty of something, and though that something is going to put him in jail for the rest of his life. It, was it going to be what it ended up being, 45 of 48? Right. Um, uh, you know, that, that I think was a surprise. But ultimately no one cares because if you're guilty of one sex crime, well, what does it matter if you're guilty of nine more in the, in the eyes of the public and in uh, in, in a, a prison sentence that he was certainly going to, gonna, at his age, going to be a life sentence if there was even one conviction? All right. So, Kevin, to review, you, you kind of make a distinction. You've, it, it, it seems like you're saying the local media was maybe a little bit more open-minded and tried to be a little bit more fair, while the national media, they had no uh interest at all in the narrative that they might have blown this because <laughs> remember it, you yeah. know media investment is so incredibly 
significant. We've seen it in so many other stories. The media hates to admit when they're wrong, especially when they have put an enormous number of chips on something. So, you know, you've got an inherent conflict of interest here. You've got national media there that if they if they were to somehow find out that Jerry Sandusky didn't actually do this stuff seven months after they destroyed Penn State and Joe Paterno's dead and his legacy's been destroyed and all that and Graham Spanier, all this damage has been done. They have no interest in that at all. I mean, do you and and do you, do you agree that that's how things manifest itself when it came to coverage of the trial? Well, yeah, absolutely. A few things on that, right? I mean, there, yeah, I remember. Dan Wetzel was writing for, and still writes for Yahoo Sports, and he just sort of every time that there's a moral outrage in athletics, he will write it, and he'll just there'll be he'll add nothing interesting. He'll just write, he'll just condemn whatever person or body you know uh, conceivably engaged in in the moral wrongdoing, and he would just write his every every night uh, after the testimony ended, he would just write his you know a standard like you know, all these, you know, heroes that took the stand and described the, the gruesome nature of how they were abused over decades, blah, 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 and the Penn State, this, that, and the other thing. And then that gets reads, and that gets retweets, and that gets clicks. You know, Christine Brennan wasn't there, but same thing with her, from um, who, who you're acquainted with, I know, John, from I'm, I'm well aware. Uh, the Post, I, or US, USA Today, rather. Um, so there were those. You also have media, I think you can put Sarah Gannam in this bucket, who, um, you, you know, are, are driven... Look, I, I mean, I'm I'm on the left politically, but I but I I've been trained uh, through law school and now in practice that the notion that no one ever lies about um, making allegations of sexual abuse that is sort of a, a tenet on the left, and obviously most media members are on the left, and and Sarah Gannon, I think fashioned herself as a, a pretty strong feminist uh, person on the left, and so you're you're always at all times going you're required <laughs> based on the dogma to believe every single allegation of sexual assault made, uh, immediately that person is a victim, and it's not even worth sort of checking out whether it's true or not because no one would ever lie about such a thing. So you had that bucket. And then you had some, you know, alternative sites, and I include Onward State in this, and, you know, some alternative legal sites, you know, sites that you describe maybe as your site or Ralph Cipriano's site, journalists from those uh, entities would come, and they were sort of, I think, more scrupulous. I don't know if there's a single person in the courthouse other than his wife and Dick Anderson and the few uh, people that were in his uh, supporter row that thought he was totally, totally innocent. But uh, here's, here's how, uh, what I think is emblematic of that, John. So there's two non-accuser witnesses that I thought were super interesting. One was Mike McQuarrie's dad, right? So they put McQuarrie on the stand. And again, McQuarrie is unwilling to go all the way and say what they said he said in the grand jury report, but he's sort of, you know, loose with how how he describes, um, and you know this, you covered in the podcast, how, what, what he actually describes that he saw. And the entire case against Joe Paterno <laughs> hinges on the word that he used to describe what he saw. And I don't think the query is smart enough to sort of realize this. So I'm, again, everyone's sort of focused on, even though they're at the Jerry Sandusky trial, what does this mean for Paterno's legacy? I'm listening to the query testimony with great interest. So I put him on the stand. He's wishy-washy back and forth, doesn't, is not careful to his words like he was every time he testified. They put his dad on the stand, and uh, he, he's uh, being cross-examined by Carl Rominger, who is now in federal prison, neither here nor there. Um, Rominger goes up and puts a transcript in front of Michael Curry's dad. It was the transcript of um, when McQuarrie's dad testified in the preliminary hearing for Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. That just happened a couple months before the trial, right? He, he went to Harrisburg. I was there. He went, took the stand. He was under oath. 
And he testified basically what he was going to testify again at this trial. And Carl Rominger asked, do you remember testifying in a preliminary hearing in Dolphin County involving Tim Curley and Gary Schultz? And Michael Curry's dad goes, no, I don't remember that. He's like, you don't remember going to Harrisburg and testifying in court? And Curry's dad goes, no, I don't. And Rominger's just looking around the courtroom like, well, what the hell do I do now? Like, how, how dumb can you be to not remember testifying in, in one of the, uh, the highest covered uh, court stories in recent memory just a few months prior? And so... Uh, and then Rominger, the judge, the like, judge right, told him, right, the I judge told the him, the, hold on, Kevin, Kevin. He gets off the stand. Let me just finish, John. Because the next witness was John Dranoff, right? Uh, the, the doctor who um, McQuarrie uh, gave the real-time report to, the contemporaneous report. You know, in these sort of sex abuse stories, the contemporaneous report is often the most pe- crucial piece of evidence, both legally and I think in just practicality. Who did you, when, when this happened, who did you tell and what did you tell? And Dranoff, for whatever reason, was a prosecution witness, and he contradicted everything Mike said. <laughs> like, no, I, you know, he never described sexual anything of a sexual nature. He just said, you know, he saw him in a shower, made him uncomfortable, which was the same thing Tim and Gary and everyone else had said. And after that session, I don't remember if they were in the same. They were, they were having the same day. I don't know if they were in the same session because remember, you know, you couldn't. There was a rule you couldn't transmit any tweets or write any sto- publish any stories from the courtroom. You had to wait to the break. So we were sort of writing stories. We wait for uh, Judge Cleland to to announce the break, and everyone would run out and publish their stories or tweet their tweets and say what happened. Um, and so when that, when that, I looked at the the other person I was with and that uh, was covering with me, I'm like, that's super important. It, people are going to care about this. Maybe not for Jerry's sake, but for the for because this is the first time we've gotten Dranov under oath saying what happened. And McQuarrie's dad is so stupid, he didn't remember testifying two months before. So we wrote a, a long story recapping their testimony, saying this is it's unbelievable that he wouldn't remember testifying. And Dranoff contradicted what Mike said was the contemporaneous report. This is so crucial. And no one else cares. <laughs> like, no, the national guys didn't understand why are they even putting on these witnesses. Who cares? I, I don't remember reading any other story other than the one we published. I'm sure there were a few that focused on it. But uh, no one cared about those two moments in court that I thought were exceptionally crucial, at least as it concerns uh, Paterno's culpability. And the reason they didn't care is not just incompetence and lack of knowledge, ignorance, as you already indicated, but because they're already invested in a narrative and anything that doesn't fit with that narrative is irrelevant. And then I I, I tried to interrupt you there, uh, and apparently our connection doesn't allow me to interrupt uh, particularly well, but it's important to point out that when Rominger hits... McQuarrie's dad with his previous testimony and McQuarrie's dad says, I don't remember. I, the judge tells Rominger to move on but as if, yeah. as if it never happened, uh, um, which, yeah. which I think goes, don't I mean? I'm assuming now as a criminal defense attorney must make your hair uh, yeah. go on end. Right. I mean, uh, here's, here's the thing, John, if that, ha- if, if there's only one accuser, right. If they say McQuarrie, they say they charge Jerry just based on McQuarrie. Uh, in his story, uh, and and that happens on the stand. You you have a big smile on your face. You go back to the bench, and you're you you do move on because in your closing argument, you can then argue, look, like the person, this person is so dumb, <laughs> like they don't well, remember testifying two months ago. But Kevin, well, I'm telling you, it Kevin, 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 I have and, a different uh, Kevin. They're not credible. Jesus. But there's so many, you know, there's so many they couldn't do that in the closing because they had to address ten other accusations. Right. I actually have a different take on what happened there. I don't think he was so dumb. 
And there were some people who I remember the narrative being that McQuarrie's dad, much like the, you know, the, the first janitor, James Calhoun, must have dementia, right? Because, you know, how do you not remember that? But but then McQuarrie's dad testifies in the future with no problem. I believe, and I wasn't there, and so I, I will rely on your assessment and memory, but why can we not conclude or at least potentially conclude the McQuarrie's dad so didn't like his prior testimony that he was just going to pretend it never happened and was instructed to do that by the prosecution. That, that could that, that could be. That could be. I mean, look, this is nine years ago. I do remember him being seeming profoundly confused. I, I do remember that. Okay. But that could be, that could be John. Uh, it, I mean, look, nothing would surprise me with those prosecutors or any prosecutor now, frankly, given my current position. But it would be wildly, wildly, wildly inappropriate, you know, lose your law license level inappropriate to tell a witness you're you're intentionally going to but, say you but, don't remember. Okay, but let's be let's be clear about how dangerous that potentially was for the prosecution, right? Let's pretend this is in theory, right? Let's pretend mm-hmm. that John McQuarrie's testimony in the grand jury was Mike never told me anything about a sexual act or an assault. Or or who knows? I mean, maybe maybe it was something about the date. Right, because I think they got it. I think they knew they had a date problem, right? Yeah. So, so maybe what if what he said there was so devastating that they could not accept its its credibility? I mean, th- there's a motivation there at least for that theory to be possible. You would agree with that, right? I, I would agree. I don't know if it's the most likely scenario because I I I, I think a lot there are a lot of dumb people in this story. Right. <laughs> And McQuarrie is one of them, and you know, Apple okay. Fall far from the truth. Fair enough. Yes. Fair enough. You know, it could. I'm. I'm usually much more prone to believing stupidity and incompetence and cowardice and all sorts of things. So I'm. And you were there, so I'll accept that. But I. I, I wouldn't totally discount uh, the other uh, potential explanation for this. Sure. Okay. All right. So. And, and, well, not for nothing, John. One more point on that. Remember, well, one of the few uh, charges the judge was acquitted of was the most serious. The query allegations. Right? Right. I think he, they still got him on right. one of the lower level sexual assault charges right. on the query episode, but he was acquitted of the rape and um, the, I think the second most serious charge of the query episode. I, I believe. So I believe. I, that, he, that, I believe he was only that stupidity matter for something. I, I believe he was only acquitted on the of the worst charge in the query episode. But the worst, uh, okay. Well. So um, all right. So you've indicated that at trial you felt like the. The first few witnesses were pretty good, right? Uh, pretty compelling yeah. in, in a vacuum. You you know, no reason to disbelieve them. But you've also indicated to me in the past that as the witnesses went on, they started to lose credibility in your mind and that and that some of the later witnesses, including victim number nine, Sebastian Payton, who had by far the worst, uh, most heinous, horrible, horrific story of basement abuse and bleeding and screaming and and frankly was telling a very different story than than the rest of the accusers at trial that you felt I don't know if you remember telling me this but you did uh, a few years after the trial that you felt that that he was the least credible and uh, and and in, I don't know if you didn't believe them in totality but you certainly had grave questions about it can you give us is that an accurate assessment of what your perception was having been in that courtroom yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, I, and I, my memory is, is so bad. I don't. I can't even remember 
like specific, uh, what they call them victims, because that's the legal term, but a term of art. But, uh, you know, I don't remember the specific accuser um, numbers and what they actually said. I just do remember, and I essentially confirmed sort of reading, well, listening to your work and reading your work and, and Ralph Cipriano's book. Um, you mean Mark? Pe- hold on a second, you, like, Kevin, they, Kevin. 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 You mean Kevin? Yeah. You mean Mark Pendergrass's book? Mark. Yeah. Mark, not Ralph Cipriano. He's a different guy. Mark Pendergrass. Yes. yes. Um, Ralph Cipriano does the the website, which is, right. which I've also read and is valuable in the, okay. in some of this uh, knowledge that has since been learned. But uh, correct. And this is how bad my memory is strong because I just forgot the author. But uh, yes, as the days went on, the the claims became less believable, more severe. Requ- required. Require you know some of the claims at the end required Dottie Sandusky being an accessory being an accessory to the crime, which just uh, seemed unbelievable to me at that point in time. But again, we had just heard and and don't forget a couple of the claims were tacked on after um, the indictment already became cu- public, right? I think when the indictment became public, correct me if I'm wrong, John, he was charged with abusing eight kids, uh, six of which were present. Two, one was McQuarrie's kid, and one was the janitor. And then two more were added after the initial indictment. Is that right? That is exactly correct. And the right. number and nine were added. And eight, number number eight. nine and number ten were added. And number nine uh, was Sebastian Payton, who you told me uh, was by far the least credible. And I and I and frankly, I you know I, this was a long time ago, but I, I believe you referred to it as laughable that that uh, his story was laughable and that uh, and that it was not to be believed. And I guess what my confusion is. And this goes back to your assessment of the media. The media general consensus was, well, he's got to be guilty. A lot of these stories don't make a lot of sense, but some of them do. Therefore, he's got to be convicted of at least some of these, if not most of these charges. But the, the media w- would not have been uh, you know, surprised or upset if he had been acquitted on a lot of them. But here's where my confusion comes in, Kevin. And tell me if this even was the thought process on, on, on your part or anybody else that was uh, involved in covering this trial. If If the premise of this case is males don't lie about homosexual sexual abuse, that that's a, that's the bedrock of the whole thing, right? How can you accept any of it if you believe that st- at least one or more of them are lying under oath? Did, did that contradiction never come up? Well, you've exposed the hypocrisy, I think, in a lot of the, the ideology that is that is passed on about allegations and delayed reporting and things of that nature. <laughs> and that's more controversial and hot button and, and gets me in trouble. I'm finally able to sort of say, it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a defense attorney. I represent uh, accused pedophiles. I represent accused rapists. And, I'm, and I, I love, I mean, that, that is my passion in life is doing that, is standing next to the person in court that everyone hates, including the judge. And is uh, someone is on the stand, you know, making allegations against them that are heinous, and if true, we'll put them in jail for a long time. And I know, and anyone in the system, except for maybe a few prosecutors that are, um, you know, more on the true believer side, everyone knows that the statistic about delayed reporting um, assaults that are alleged is not, oh, it's less than 1% are made up. It's far greater than that. It, it is, I mean, it just is. Humans... I mean, if you pulled humans like is the sky green, uh, you would get, <laughs> especially in the era of Trump, you would get, you know, 5%, you know, some, something higher than, than what we know to be true. I mean, humans are, the human brain is a fascinating 
Okay. Well, especially and, when, especially um, Kevin, Kevin, especially when millions of dollars are at stake. All right. I mean, which. Well, and we, and we would later find out when we, we sort of knew at the time, but we would later find out that the, the motivation was there for every single person to make these allegations. And there was no contemporaneous report. I mean, the bigger now is looking back again with the benefit of hindsight. Um, the greater conspiracy would be if there was not a single contemporaneous report from any of the accusers that testified, right? right. The bigger conspiracy is that there was not a single one, <laughs> I, you know? I mean, you know, the, the, um, when you look at the psychology of memory and, the, and you know, prosecutors, when these cases will often put up, and I think they may have, I don't remember, they may, have, they may put up an, uh, like what they call an expert in memory saying, you can totally excuse the fact that the reporting was delayed and they didn't tell anyone at the time, and here's the psychological reasons for that. I, I don't – I mean, I think common sense and, and my personal experience in court um, and in life in general, I, I, in, in reading Elizabeth Loftus, I think, is a, a key person to read on this topic about memory and delayed yes. reporting, and she'll be often uh, pillaged for testifying in hot-button trials. I, I think she may have testified in Harvey Weinstein's trial. I don't remember, but – um. You know, the mem- memory is 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 a tough thing. You don't right. remember, and and if there's no contemporaneous reports, right? I mean, there has to be at least one of anyone who testified, and there and there wasn't a single one, and right. it only became that way when um, there was a motivation to do so. Right. And I don't even view John, and this is getting way into the case. I don't even view necessarily uh, some of them as intentionally lying, right? I think. And we heard this in court. This is, what, again, another bombshell moment in court that did not get covered nationally was when, uh, I forget which, which accuser number it was, uh, the investigators left the tape on after the right. accuser left this the room. Victim number and, four. Victim number four. Yeah. And they basically, the, the gist of the conversation with the technique, because the victim four was saying nothing happened, you know, nothing sexual, I wasn't uncomfortable at all, it was all good. Detectives were like, we need to tell him that there's, you know, 10 other people saying the same thing. It's okay. He needs to just tell the truth finally, and he's and he's not going to be the one responsible for putting Jerry Smusky in prison or ruining his life. And in fact, if he doesn't hop on, you know, he will be um, he'll be <laughs> he he will not be able to benefit from this. And, uh, and and I think that happened with every single person. And you, and you described it about Alan Myers in a previous episode about how I think that was the, the prosecutional tactic and the investigative tactic for every single one. It's get them a civil attorney and then get them in the room. And even though they denied it two, three, four, sometimes five or six times, tell them, and then this happened every single one, <laughs> tell them, you know, you're not going to be the person responsible for end, you know, ending this guy. Uh, it, it can only be to your benefit to tell us the truth. You know, you have Andrew Shubin and Slade McLaughlin in the corner sort of winking. Um, and, and that's how this all came to be. Not None of this was known, really, and, and at least in a way that you could – uh, coherently cross-examine any of these people right. at the time of trial. I mean, John, I have retail thefts that take longer to go to trial than seven months. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it really, really insane okay. in hindsight. At the time, when I was, I'm 20, maybe 21, 20, yeah, I'm 20, I didn't know all the legal tenets. I didn't know all the background. And I was hoping, just as someone who wanted to watch a trial was actually interesting, that the defense would, would, um, would have some compelling evidence to, to the contrary. Uh, maybe he was just a chaff pedophile who was weird and put his hand on kids' legs while he was driving or found reasons to shower with kids. Maybe that was true, and he wasn't actually a monster. But we didn't hear any of that. It was, the cross-examining um, was uh, was very limited. And I don't, I'm not going to criticize Joe, uh, although you will. Uh, but no one 
not even the best attorney in America could take that case to trial in seven months. No, I agree. I agree with that. I've actually defended Joe uh, on that on those grounds many times, although there there are mistakes he made, which I think are going to become more and more clear as you listen to later episodes of the podcast that are are inexplicable. Uh, and actually, <laughs> that's when, when I learned of those. That's when my relationship with Joe ended, uh, which was not not coincidental. But let's go. So so the, the verdict happens. He's convicted on almost all counts. Uh, is it fair to say that in your mind, you're thinking, Boy, that didn't feel like a very fair trial, but this guy's probably guilty of at least some of this. So it's I'm not feeling like this is a horrendous injustice. It just doesn't make me feel particularly uh, secure in our system. Is that I mean that is that a reasonably fair assessment of, of where you were at the time of the verdict? Yeah, I mean that and that may be my thought for like five seconds. And then again, just like everyone else in town and in the media and every Penn Stater, we focus on uh, Joe Paterno, what does this mean for him? And because right in succession there, John, you remember, and this really, I think, um, uh, didn't allow the Paterno sort of defense team, for lack of a better term, um, to, to, to go back and, and actually put on a defense that was compelling. Because you have the free report, um, you have the NCAA, the, the free report come out, the statute comes down, and the NCAA issues sanctions. And that's all about a month after the trial. So there was not really that much time to think, uh, you know, about Jerry Sandusky. Immediately, it turns to free report, NCAA sanctions, statute, and everything that sort of came with, with that. Right. And and so now there's this momentum. The, these dominoes are falling in, at rapid succession. And by the way, it, not coincidentally. I mean, this is all timed, in my opinion, uh, the you know the, the the free report and the NCAA uh, everyone everything needs to get done because there's a new football season coming up and there are questions about whether or not Penn State's even going to play football in that next year and so uh, everyone is now deeply invested in all of this and so at, at a certain point Kevin and I think the listeners already understand that you you clearly well, let's be let's make sure there's no ambiguity about this you now believe that the verdicts were incorrect is that fair yes and do you do you believe that jerry zandusky is likely innocent yes okay so how and when did you come to that startling conclusion well it's it, it's it's tough to pinpoint exactly john because this was and to be in student media at the time i mean there was a, a story of national significance developing in this case basically every day for three or four years. I mean, there's been no other story like this since and probably will never be given the, our attention span in uh, the era of Twitter and Trump and whatever. Um, so every day he was covering a new story. And immediately, you know, that year, you know, you, from the time the presentment comes out to Joe's death, to the conviction, to the sanctions, uh, to the free report, um, that's all in one year, which is insane to think about. It's actually all in nine months. Um, then well, now we have sort of have to try to figure out how to pick up the rubble, right? There's so many sports aspects to the story. You know, you, we got to hire a coach and who's staying and who's leaving. And now it's sort of a miraculous 2012 season that's, you know, in the Penn State history books. So there's a sports angle. Then you start getting people start suing, right? So you have the Jake Corman lawsuit. You have, um, people like Ryan Bagwell that are suing for Freedom of Information Act materials. Um, and we start getting a lot of these, like, document dumps 
um, as a result of sort of the backlash to mm-hmm. a lot of this, uh, the, that, that whole year of, of nonstop stories. And, you know, we start finding out, and then the settlements start coming out. Um, and most of that's private, but enough of it is leaked, either actually it's literally leaked or has been told to me by um, <laughs> people that were leaking it verbally and not, uh, not in writing especially as a member of the media who had sort of had some prominence at that point in being able to break stories um, and present them in a, in a way that was fair. You know, I was getting calls from administrators and trustees giving me information that was not public. Um, and you start to see how all the stories of the accusers developed over time. And, it's, and even, even though I wasn't legally trained at that point, even though I never defended um, – a sexual abuse case at that point. It just, it, 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 and I, it, and I was not sort of dogmatically liberal in the sense that you must believe every allegation that comes forward. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I was a, I was a journalist, quote unquote, at that time. Um, and, you know, you're supposed to scrutinize everything, even if political dogma uh, says you don't. And so when you start hearing about, you know, it, I remember Aaron Fisher's book came out and you read the book and it just seems like sensational. <laughs> like it was written by that psychologist psychologist and just didn't make any sense and then you i think your work there's a few people's work yours um, predominantly but also the other authors we we mentioned uh pendergrass and and the, and the rest coupled with the legal documents sort of paint a picture of how the stories that ended up being testified to at trial developed from the initial point of the investigation back in 2007 2008 maybe 2009 ish was under under then attorney general corbett to getting in the courtroom. And it started to come together when I see that, you know, anyone who testified was getting 7 to $10 million without any sort of questioning or, or vetting. And, in fact, you know, there was now 30 or 40 of them that, that came forward to, to collect their check and uh, box from, from Penn State. And uh, you just start to see how the stories develop, and it just it, it didn't it, – what made more sense was um, and when you found out how the investigation happened. You know, they, how many? They had like two or three, right, John, back when the initial investigation happened uh, with Corbett, and they didn't think that that was enough to charge Jerry, right? Well, um, yeah, they had they basically they needed, they they ba- needed more. Well, they based basically until the McQuarrie happened. All they knew about was Aaron Fisher in 1998. So, uh, right. so victim number one and victim number six and. Once they get McQuarrie, though, then they're able to use McQuarrie in their fishing expedition, and they interview hundreds right. and hundreds of former Second Mile uh, kids, and they are able to to yeah. to, to cobble together uh, what looks like a far more impressive case than it actually was. So to reassess here and to, to review, Kevin, it sounds to me like, uh, and not to overuse with the benefit of hindsight, but it it feels like having time as well as more information there are pieces of a puzzle that were very incomplete at trial that now you're able to put together and the picture is not just a little different, it's radically different. Is that a fair assessment of how your evolution of thought occurred? Correct. And I can't remember the first time I'd heard John Snedden's name, but that was a really crucial piece of information. Um, You know, when Spanier was cleared for his national security clearances, and in fact, said went one step further and, and said that he thought that enough he was innocent. And more and more people around town started, you know, started whispering about, um, yeah, this could all be, this could all be wrong. 
And I think it, you know, around 2013, 2014-ish, into 15, um, you know, I think my opinion switched to, I think he was maybe like sort of a, a, a chast type pedal. I mean, it, it is objectively weird, John, and I think you would agree with this. You know, if you're driving kids around and putting your hand on their knee right. and, and being overly touchy. And, and for the and record, Kevin, why, Kevin, I don't know if you remember this. Crime. But Kevin, Kevin, I don't know if you remember, but that was my theory for a while. It was the chase pedophile yeah, and theory. I, and I shared that with you, and, and which is not a crime, but still, you know, weird and not something you really want to touch. This is why, John, uh, even though I think um, he's innocent, Jerry Sandusky is among the, the first people I hate the most in this entire story because – just think about in '98, you're investigated for molesting children. Right. You're investigated or a child. You're investigated. You are one rogue. Pro- and this, these are charges. Doesn't even matter if you're acquitted. Once you're charged, your life's over. Right. You know what I mean? It was incredibly you are one stupid. One rogue prosecutor away. Right. One rogue prosecutor away from your life being ruined, and you still continue the conduct. I mean, that is a level of stupidity that I can't even wrap my head around. Which Kevin, is why I, even, I I agree. I, I, I have an incentive to believe he's guilty because I hate him for doing that. He ruined my school. <laughs> Kevin, I, even though it wasn't his fault, uh, he, kept, he kept showering with kids after he was investigated. Okay. I mean, if you're a, a rational person and you're investigated for that and you're innocent, you stay 100 feet away from every kid ever in, unless you're in a public place. I mean, that's insane to me. But that's what this side. Well, but, hold on a second. Let me, let me address, Kevin, let me address that. I agree with you. He's, he's unbelievably naive and at times stupid. But you also have to understand that that didn't happen nearly as often as is being perceived. The reason why there are so many reports of that happening now is because that's what Penn State was paying millions of dollars for. See, right. so, so you understand, so in my opinion, there are only two, two verified episodes of Jerry Sandusky taking a, a a shower quote unquote with a with a boy on Penn State's campus two over an ex- incredibly long period of time now I'm sure it happened more than that I'm not suggesting it only right. happened to but but the, I think that that's an important point that the perception does not meet reality although I agree with you it yeah. was incredibly stupid and naive you know once I mean hell I, you know, I've never been accused of anything. I won't go near a child on a playground. You no, know, be, just because I, because of the world we live in. I mean, I hate it. I yeah. I, I hate that I have to do that. But I mean, uh, it's 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 it is incredibly stupid. And I believe part of Sandusky's arrogance that was born out of his own confidence in his morality. Ironically enough, because he. He knew he was doing nothing wrong. That was, that was right. What was driving him? All right, anyway, so I don't want to get too right. bogged down in that. Being cleared but, almost emboldened him in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Uh, okay, so all right, so you slowly come to the conclusion that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. This is the forbidden truth, especially within State College. Tell me about your experience in quote unquote coming out privately to maybe other people uh, involved in the story or people you know that have, are interested in the story? What, what's that been like? Well, here's the thing, John, and, and I don't know, I don't think this is an overgeneralization. And uh, here's the, the issue with addressing the story from the Penn Stater aspect. The, the only people that care about this story or continue to care about it were Penn Staters. And the people that are most susceptible to having their blinders on and 
ignoring their biases are Penn Staters. So uh, it's, it's ding, 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 ding. Which, yeah, which is which is tough, and why it's easily discounted. But that's so most. But uh, this is not a generalization. Most people around town that are at least that are one degree of separation from any of the key players in this story, right? Um, there's there are several exceptions, including people that I am still friends with and old trustees that I am acquainted with and or friends with in some cases. Most people now that have paid attention uh, and and are not totally blinded by their politics, like believe he is innocent in town, right? Now that's not students. That's not. I mean, there's there's so much turnover, John. There's only one member that was on president's council, which is the high, highest level of administrators, you know, a body of about 20. There's only one member that's still here from pre-2011, mm-hmm. ironically, my former boss. Um, and there's only one member of the board of trustees that was on the board that fired Joe. So there's so much turnover, and none of these new people know or care. But of the old guard, which is slowly dying away or moving away or going into hiding, most people think he's innocent at this point. But at the time... It was just, it was like, you know, you give each other a look. It's, it's like a quiet, it was a quiet sort of thing. I remember talking to a friend of mine in student government where I, I was a member for many, many years, um, both undergraduate and graduate, and one of the more thoughtful people in student government who was involved with uh, the Blue Band, um, which is the Penn State Marching Band, and he was sort of following the daily story like like I was. And, and I, remember, I remember talking to him, like, look, you know, this, this document, I don't even remember what it was, like, I'm starting to think that this guy might not have actually done any of these things. And he sort of looks at me and looks both ways, makes sure no one's there. And he's like, I, I agree with you. You know, I read the same thing and I, and I, and I interpreted it that way. But when you mentioned coming out, I actually have a good story about that. So I was sitting in my apartment, man, it must've been, it was either 2014 or 2015. And I get a text from, uh, I will describe him because he is not quote unquote out yet. I will describe him as a former Penn State quarterback, all right, within the last 15 years, put it that way. And he was a source to me over the years, and, and we became friends, um, pretty good friends, and still are, and uh, actually a pretty popular former quarterback um, that a lot of people know. But he texts me, and he says, Kevin, I, you know, I need to I, I want to go. I, I, we need to go on a walk, and that's where you, we would go on walks, you know, when he wanted to tell me things. I'm going to go on a walk, and uh, I have something I need to get off my chest. This was like 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning. Uh, Oh, sure, all right, fine, and I'll meet you in front of Old Main. So I meet him, and we start walking around campus. And uh, he's not saying anything to me that isn't at all interesting. We're just sort of talking about life and um, how the team was looking or whatever. I don't remember if he was still on the team at this point or not, or if he was just in the area. Uh, I don't remember that. Um, But we get near the stadium and he goes, Kevin, I, I have to confess something to you. What's that? I think he's innocent. And I'm like, who, Joe? He's like, no, I think Jerry Sandusky is totally innocent. And this is a, a guy that was on the team for a long time. And I, I look at him I'm like, you know, I'm starting to reach the same conclusion, man. And I mean, we must have walked until five in the morning, sort of <laughs> laying out all the evidence we have for this claim. Wow. And there's many stories like that, John, of people like wow. coming out. It's sort of like, you know, I, I imagine right. him like being a homosexual in like the 70s plus. You know what I mean? It's like, not to not to make light of uh, that example, but it's it's um it, it's always a weird experience. There's a, I'll tell you this. I was um I'm involved still in local media to some extent. I'm on a television show with uh, Brandon Noble, who used to be in the NFL, and Mike the Mailman, who everyone in town knows, and some other folks. And um, 
we we were in that uh, we we went to the bowl game in 2019 I think it was whatever the Fiesta Bowl was the Penn State mm-hmm. one out in right, Phoenix right and we were doing a live taping of the show out in Phoenix and um, you'll notice and you mentioned this in the previous pocket people like Jay Paterno will never say when they're writing about the topic which is not that often anymore they'll never say like uh, Jerry Sandusky you know the, the pedophile they'll say Jerry Sandusky was convicted of. Right, which is fact, and not mm-hmm. expressing any sort of, of your personal opinion. You know, people speak in coded language about this, <laughs> both right. in columns and around town. And I remember we were on the dais, and we did a live show for an hour, and I must have used some coded language about something, because afterwards, some weird-looking guy, and if you're listening, I apologize, but you are weird-looking, <laughs> starts inching his way up to the table um, and sort of giving me the side-eye, you know, back and forth for like three minutes. So I'm talking to other people and shaking hands or whatever. And this guy, like, finally jimmies his way up to me. And my other co-hosts are, are, are there. And they, of course, um, you know, know my position on the matter. And um, he looks at me. He's like, Kevin, I, you know, I just have to ask you something. Uh, you know, I, I know you and John Ziegler, you know, have had your beefs. But uh, you, you think he's innocent, right? <laughs> I look at him. You know, it's like a hush-hush, back-to-the-parliament back <laughs> type thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I do, man. How, how did you know? He's like, and he, he walks away. And that, that's the last time I've ever seen the guy or heard of the guy. Uh, I don't even know what his name well, is. Well, I've, uh, I've, I've had many. So there's sim- so many funny moments like that. Well, I, I don't think you were at the Spaniard trial, but I had exactly the same I was, experience. for a couple days. Okay, well, I don't, I don't think you were there on the day that Curley and Schultz testified. But Correct. They, they used exactly the same kind of coded language, almost more blatantly signaling that they thought Jerry was innocent. I thought, and I, 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 my mind was blown because at that point I didn't realize that they thought even that Jerry Sandusky was innocent. But it was, and I've later learned that in fact they do, and that that's why they used the coded language that they did. Um, but so I got to ask you though, Kevin. So you've had this private coming out. Why uh, did you never have a public coming out? in all the times that you wrote about this very publicly, you defended Joe Paterno many times, but you never uh, waded into this toxic pool. Uh, so tell me why you never did that. Well, it, I mean, it's, it's self-serving, John. There's no, there's no benefit to being publicly out in that way, as you yourself well know of the last decade of your work. And at that point in time, I mean, look, I was um, – in, in, by the time I reached this conclusion, I was becoming a graduate student body president, which, again, does not really matter to the grand scheme of things. But, you know, that gets you invited uh, as a non-voting member to all of the trustee meetings. That gets you in the room with the president of the university. That gets you, you know, a lot of access. And I was focused on other things, right? I was focused on <laughs> some smaller scale, you know, student government nerdy type initiatives and you know, if I could come out and say, here's what I think, and then Jerry Sandusky would immediately be exonerated, or I thought that I could change a significant number of minds by, by saying so, well, then perhaps I would have done so because that would have been the right thing to do. But ultimately, my opinion is not going to do either of those things. My opinion is not going to set Jerry free. My opinion is not going to change that many minds, okay. if any. All right, hold on. Arrogant to Kevin, so. Kevin. But, but had I come out, it would immediately been uh, – no, you know, look at your co-host, Liz. She posts about it, and then she has to deal with 100 tweets at her calling her a jackass. And so I, there's no way I'm willingly going to put myself through that. And then, John, I, I ultimately worked for the university for two years, okay? And 
Um, and it, it was sort of, I, I, I'm not so arrogant to say that it was controversial in the grand scheme of things, but I, it, I was the critic of the university for many, many years in writing and to who ended up becoming my boss. And credit to him for still hiring me because he could put those differences aside and thought that I had value to give. So I was an attorney, uh, not in the general counsel's office, but in a, in a unit of uh, Penn State for uh, two years before I went off to okay. Pittsburgh. Um, All right, and so, I'm still in so, State, so, State College now, but so, there, was no benefit, there was no benefit. Okay, so, and, and so I'm glad that you're admitting that the reason why you didn't tell the truth is because you felt like the ramifications to you would be too severe and the benefits – for doing so would not be nearly enough. I get that. It's probably the correct assessment. I reject the statement didn't tell the truth, because if you read anything I said after the 2014, 2015-ish era, never did I call him a pedophile. If I even referenced him, it would be, you know, Well, that's, okay, there's a a massive, there's a massive omission there, which, okay, fine. Again, by the way, I'm, I'm agreeing that your assessment was correct, but I don't. I'm also going to call a spade a spade, and that is that that you were putting your own self-interest ahead of the truth, which most people will do. And the part that really bugs me uh, about your your perception of this and, and your and your perspective, which again, unfortunately, I think is not just the majority now; it's the super duper majority of people, especially Penn Staters, who I I now perceive to be some of the wimpiest people on the planet. But the uh, but the problem with this concept of well, I'm not going to change the world by myself. Do you think, Kevin, that I thought I was going to change the world by myself when I got involved in this? Do you think that's what I thought? Well, you're fortunate, John, uh, and I don't know you that well personally, but you're you're fortunate to be in a position where you're self-employed and, uh, you know, sort of detached in the situation where you can obsess over this story for nine years. And I'm I'm very – Penn Staters are very fortunate that you have because we wouldn't have a lot of the information we have without your work. But, look, I mean, look, I have a full-time job. I have um, – I'm getting married next year, ironically, to someone I met at a Jerry Sandusky pretrial hearing. <laughs> Which is which is ironic, but uh, uh, there's like I don't know if 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 I thought that I would make a difference. But Kevin, my point is my point is correct the narrative. Then I would have done it. But but Kevin, Kevin, I have other interests, John. I I I, 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 I like to live my life. I got I got. By the way, you're downplaying the amount of. damage that has been done to my life and career uh, by this. Uh, and I'm not looking for... Oh, really, I don't mean to... Okay, okay but I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm and I, I'm, not, I'm not looking for hosannas. I'm, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that if everybody who thought the way you did had stood up, this thing would be fixed. Because there, it's not yeah. just you. It's all sorts of people. It's Graham Spanier. It's Gary Schultz. It's Tim Curley. It's it's Jay Paterno. It's it's maybe other members of the Paterno family. There there are other members of the news media who 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 don't have the the balls to actually tell the truth about this because and it all goes back to maybe what I think is the most important phrase in this whole deal. You know the old Ben Franklin: "We shall all hang together, or we will surely hang separately." And because no, there was there was no courage. For, for everyone to do their part, except from some idiot named John Ziegler in Southern California with no connection to yeah. Penn State, maybe a couple of others. Uh, so, so because no one had the courage, there's no momentum, and the truth dies, and an injustice is allowed to stand. 
can you understand from my perspective, Kevin, why that pisses me off? No, well, absolutely, and especially from your perspective. But there's a reason, John. I mean, you have uh, members of the board of trustees, many of them at the time, that believe Jerry was innocent, who were approving settlements, right? Because there are there are other calculations you have to make in how you talk about this issue beyond just like what is the best for clearing Jerry Sandusky, what is the best for. Um, it, you have to look out for the institution in some sense, right? I don't agree with this, but the logic right. was we just got to get these settlements approved and over with. So we can move on as an institution. Oh, believe me, I, I have, I have, I have and, incredible, I have incredible disdain for the members of the Penn State Board of Trustees, and there were at least three or four of them, maybe more, who knew that Jerry was innocent by the time they were still approving settlements uh, for people who made false yeah. accus- accusations against him. Uh, and but you can you can understand the logic in doing so, even if you don't agree with it. I I understand the political element of it i don't understand the logic because and and this has been one of the more shocking things and there's so many shocking things that i've learned about humanity in the last 10 years i can't believe how difficult it is to get penn staters to understand the only way that joe paterno's legacy is ever going to be remotely restored is for jerry to be exonerated to me this is as obvious as what day of the week it is yet yeah i, I don't agree with that point and, and that's that's yeah i don't i don't because i think you can separate the two no but you I can't think, kevin you can't now it's way too late way too right. way way too late in 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 2011 and 2012 you you could have if if Scott Paterno hadn't been such a moron and 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 they hadn't bought bought into so many different things that was possible it is not possible now zero chance because there's you can't get people to even pay attention to this and you know before I because I don't want to go on too long with this because I don't I don't want to berate you after uh, after agreeing oh, agreeing to do this interview with me after all these years and I do appreciate you at least now belatedly uh, you know doing a mea culpa and saying yeah this is this is what I well, really it's not even a mea culpa John I'm a defense attorney now who does not work for Penn State University right okay <laughs> like, well okay I'm, now I'm that starting off my career all right now that I you have nothing to lose John's right. Who's going to hire me? Okay. Right? I'm fortunate to be in a position where I represent pedophiles right. or okay. alleged pedophiles, right. well, and, you, and that is my job, and right. I love that job. Great. So okay. I'm in, a, I'm in a position where I can do this interview. Right, because because you're not going to have any harm from it. State University. That's great. You're not going to have any harm from it. That's great. Profile encouraged there, Kevin Horn. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> so, so uh, the the reality the reality of this is that um, you know. There's no way to fix this when everyone has that kind of perspective, uh, and I'm not. Unfortunately, you're you're not alone. I mean, let me let me ask you this: in our remaining minutes, my perception is that Penn Staters are incredibly, and by and large, with some important exceptions, incredibly politically correct, woke, virtue signaling wussies 
Uh, I mean, we're, we're speaking this week. This happens to be a week in which one of the biggest stories that happened was that Penn State embraced the idea that a rope found on a tree must have been a noose intended as a hate crime against two black professors. Yeah. It turned out it was just two kids playing. And I thought, well, gee. That's a crazy story. Yeah. How shocking is it that PC Penn State immediately embraces the moral panic and it turns out to be total bullshit? Uh, this is hardly a surprise. Uh, well, our, I'll put it this way, John. That, I mean, that's not that's not unique to Penn State. Higher education in general. I get has it. All gone that I, and, way. But but and I'm on the left, John. Look, I'm 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 like you. I am on the left, and I had to deal with it even when I was an employee. Here's a good story for you. I, I tweet. I was at Georgia Tech uh, visiting uh, a friend, and um, they have a, a, a statue, a, a memorial on campus to Rosa Parks, and that memorial includes three Rosa Parks statues from when she was young to middle-aged to old, and they're sort of in a, in sitting on each other, and that's all well and good. You know, Rosa Parks, important person. Right. And so I take a picture of this, and I tweet it out. I'm like, Joe Paterno, statue fans, like, I have a, an idea for you, right? It's making a joke about, like, you know, we should have not only one Joe Paterno statue, but three of them. Um, and I got sent to HR <laughs> because they said I was being racist. Oh my God. to compare her for oh, uh, All right. a well, child no, look, nobody... And I was cleared, but it, that happens. Uh, I could not work in higher ed, even uh, as a liberal, John. I right. could not work in higher I, ed. I, 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 That's partially why I left. I get that academia in general is incredibly woke, but Penn State, given the area of the country it's in, which is not a woke area, <laughs> is, is unbelievably woke and PC and I think was... I believe, Kevin, my theory, and you I'm sure you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, my theory is that part of why you guys were so vulnerable to this is because of your relative isolation, the fact that you embraced the whole paterno narrative for decades that we are better than everybody else, uh, we're, we're more moral than everybody else, we go by the rules, we actually, uh, you know, we, we, we study, uh, academics are important, and so when your virtue was under attack, you did everything you could to signal, no, 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 we really are virtuous and we're going to prove how virtuous we are by throwing the alleged guilty people as far under the goddamn bus as we possibly can. Due process be damned uh, and, and, and you know, loyalty be damned, facts be damned, and we're going to crawl into the fetal position and uh, we're going to say, thank you, sir, may I have another? Uh, and that, and that, like, well, like animals. Let me finish. Like animals in a zoo, you had totally lost all of your survival instincts over these decades. And that the great irony of this whole thing is that the wonder of the Paterno era actually set Penn State up to be completely vulnerable, much like a virus. Since we're in the COVID era, you you were you were not inoculated from any viruses at all because you hadn't had any viruses for decades, and then you got one. Yeah. And it killed you. What do you make of that theory? Yeah, well, I have a lot to say about that, John. A couple things, and I don't necessarily disagree in, in entirety. Um, it's sort of funny you mentioned the woke. Consider that the, the the board of trustees at Penn State. I think it's still probably majority Republican because it's all it's made up of farmers and CEOs. And uh, you have Scott Paterno, who's doing the Paterno messaging, who's a staunch Reagan-era Republican. So you have the two people that are like making the most noise that have the most power over the narrative are both. Uh, Republican leaning, so that it sort of contradicts that a little bit. But I understand what you're saying. I think part of this, and this is not people have now deified Graham Spanier 
right? As because he was a victim in all this, they have made him out to be some sort of hero. And it's Spanier is one of the most fascinating people, in my opinion, in higher ed history. In this sense, you can make a compelling argument that he was among the three best Penn State presidents ever, and you can also make a compelling argument that he was among the three worst, independent of any of the Sandusky stuff. But no doubt, one of the three most transformational. And one of this, the, the one of his most transformational moves was usurping all power and putting it into him. Right, the board of trustees. The administration was all created uh, in, in purposefully by Spanier for him to build an empire, right? I mean, tuition tripled under Spanier at Penn State because he built it out. They just right. Kevin, so how does this relate? How does this relate? How, how does this so, relate? Let me, finish, let me finish the example. When so he, oh, he had all the power, and when he was eliminated from the situation, there was no leaders to step up because he had built this house of cards underneath him. Uh, and there was no one left to stand up for him uh, because it was created in his vision and, and with, with a bunch of toadies, okay. you know. And so ironically, when, when uh, Spanier falls and you have no one at the university that is, has done anything in their tenure in leadership other than come to cocktail hours and give Spanier whatever he wants, you have no one there to do anything other than Scott Paterno running around in his yard thinking that um, – you know, convicting Jerry Sandusky from day one is the only way to uh, restore the family name, which is which is still bonkers to stay. So you have that happen, and there's no going back on that. And then you have the NCAA get involved, and then as soon as that happens, as soon as the NCAA gets involved, they decide you either have to, if you believe that, or they at least decided, now we have to give them everything we want in order to not get the death penalty football-wise. So those two moments, the leadership vacuum in the beginning – and then once football became involved and you say, we have to save this program or we're screwed, we're never coming back as an institution if we lose the football program. Therefore, we have to take the statue down. We have to accept the free report. Oh, you know, 106 recommendations, blah, 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 blah. Once those two things happened, there was no going back. There was no going back. I, I, and um, okay. well, we, have ne- we, we have never, and I suspect we'll never recover from those two weeks, both in the beginning and then the week the free report came out. In correcting anything, um, and that's um, that's that's a tragedy of someone who right. still lives in State College part time and and loves the place. It's it's um, it's it's really it, it stinks. All right, well, well, let's finish up since you mentioned uh, Scott Paterno, um, and and we huh. tend to agree on on Scott's role in all this. Although uh, you um, very bravely, uh, benignly uh, tweeted about our podcast when it uh, when it started to get dropped, and uh, you told me that uh, you believe that that's the reason why Scott Paterno blocked you on Twitter, uh, and then <laughs> I and then I asked you to simply. Uh, share the the podcast again and mention that Scott Paterno blocked you on Twitter for having done that, and you refused to do so, which was another uh, uh, profile and courage on your part. Um, what, could, could can you give me your assessment of uh, of Scott and uh, and and the this issue of why oh, no God. no one will no one will still stand up against him? Well, now you're really getting in trouble. Now, Scott, I mean, I, I don't know if you blocked it for that. Scott, Scott has followed me off and on, on Twitter for uh, about 10 years, and he will go a year with blocking me, a year with unblocking me. There's no rhyme or reason to it. I just noticed that he had blocked me 
within a, uh, a day of me tweeting out that podcast. I don't know when it happened. It could have happened before, but not uh, much before because I remember I seeing a tweet. So I don't know if he did that or not. He may have, uh, but he'll, he'll I, get mad. <laughs> he'll, he'll block me sometimes just for like tweeting something anti law enforcement or okay. something that offends his Reagan sensibilities. So I don't know. Uh, so you're, you're, you know what happened. <laughs> okay. But, but by and large, you agree, you agree with my assessment of Scott, do you not? Oh yeah. I mean, the initial, the initial media here, here is the totality of the Paterno media strategy. I mean, frankly, people, people like Jake Corman have done more for the Paterno media strategy than themselves. Their strategy was twofold. Initially it was to put Scott out in front of the media and, um, uh, just continue. This is very, I think 1980s sort of corporate logic. Like we were just going to apologize for everything and we're going to put our we're going to we're going to seem like we are um uh uh being extremely deferential and considerate of people who have alleged child sexual abuse and therefore the public will look favorably upon us for doing so and uh, above all we're not going to criticize michael query uh without even addressing i mean the media is stupid but they're not this stupid without even addressing like what um the words Mike actually used, which is the entire case against Paterno. I mean, we didn't hear a single person, the last name Paterno, even address the allegation in specificity until Jay, during his wonderful eulogy in January, right, when he actually, he didn't get into depth, but he at least said, you know, this is, he was told this, and then he did this with it, and that's ridiculous that he's been pillared for that. Um, That's the first time I heard it. And then their second strategy after that was to release a report (laughs) that they paid for uh, which was called the Paterno Report, which no one is going to give any credit to because it was paid for and released by the family. And it was just a bunch of, like, psychologists talking about, and a former governor, I guess, in Thornburg, you know, talking about why, uh, you know, people don't necessarily pick up on community pedophiles and, and uh, you know, how it can happen right under your nose and, and you're not culpable for it. I don't care about any of that. I care about what he knew and what he did with that information. And there's never been a coherent strategy um, to uh, to put that out there. And, you know, from what what we know, I think, you know, Scott was sort of leading the way on, on that. Uh, right. All right. You know, well, that, that initiative. And, and clearly it did not it did not work. So whatever that's worth. That's for sure. All right. Well, Kevin, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for uh, belatedly uh, coming forward and telling what you know to be the truth. Uh, it should be noted that bizarrely, uh, you're, you already referenced the woman you're dating. She happens to work in the law firm of Al Lindsay, who is Jerry Sandusky's appeal attorney. Uh, although, <laughs> although you're not working on Jerry Sandusky's appeal, correct? No, I'm not. No. Uh, um, and, uh, but you're obviously intimately familiar with what's going on there. And so for, for the sake of full disclosure, uh, that should be noted, but uh, I'm glad that you're, I understand from your perspective, everything you've done uh, and you're uh, ironically, our evolutions on this are not that dissimilar. I was just a lot dumber than you. So uh, as far as uh, protecting my own self-interest. So, uh, but anyway. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm less courageous than you, John, but I'll, I'll take the compliment that I'm not as dumb. <laughs> we, can, we can agree on that. All uh, right. That, that diameter on this, uh, right. this whole case. Fair enough. Kevin Horn, thanks so much for your time. All right, John. Thank you.